I'm going to introduce that. Whatever, I'll just say something. I hate my intros anyway, so there's nothing that can be done about it. That's a spirit. There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing to be done Hello and welcome to Marginally Significant. My name is Andrew Smith and I'm here with Andrew Monroe. Hello. Twyla Wingrove. Hello. And Chris Holden. Hey. Before we get into our main topic today, Twyla, I wanted to ask you about your recent writing retreat. Or, I don't know, I was going to say self-imposed writing retreat, but I don't know, I guess that's not really the right way of discretion. Yeah, I know. You're punishing <laughs> yourself, apparently. Um, but, but yeah, so you just got back for a long well, couple days ago, got back from a writing retreat. What was that about? What'd you do? Yeah, so this is the first time I've done something like this, and overall I think it was a success. So I have a colleague who is actually a former student, now an assistant professor, and she she's at Black Hill State University, so she is thousands of, or 8,000 miles away from us. I don't know, I haven't done the math. And so we, and we have several papers that we want to get out, and um, so we met halfway in between in lovely Peoria, Illinois, <laughs> glamorous Peoria, Illinois, and just got an Airbnb and hold up for a week. So five days, we were there. And, um, and we organized it so that we were sort of, each of us was working on, we had three projects that we were juggling. So each of us was working on one of the projects for maybe like a two hour chunk. And then we would um, reconvene, exchange notes or questions that we had been collecting for that two hour period, uh, take a break and then get back to it. And so for, I think it was probably four solid days, um, we wrote and analyzed and, um, and it was super productive. It worked really well for me. So I used to try to, well, I don't know if I ever really tried to embrace. I used to feel guilty that I couldn't do the like 15 minutes a day of writing. It's how you become a productive academic. And I just, I need to just admit that that doesn't work for me because I just feel guilty because I haven't written and I, I can't write tomorrow because right. I have a thing. And so um, this was just a, for my writing style, this was a much more healthy, functional, <laughs> productive time. And so, uh, so yeah, I think it worked great. Yeah, that, I mean, your experience sounds very similar to mine in terms of trying to write, like, during the, the semester. Because I, I block out, like, you know, oh, I have an hour here, an hour there of writing. But then that's, like, the first thing to go. Like, oh, crap, I'm behind on, you know, of course, crap, I'm behind on grading. Well, I'll just do it during that time. Yeah. And I don't keep it protected. And, and maybe I should. But but that's the idea of, like, yeah, I don't have it protected. So having that amount of time to just focus on writing sounds awesome. Um, and I don't know, hopefully it was useful for you. Yeah, yeah, we've already decided we're doing it again next year, mm-hmm. so um, I think it'll be a good habit. The trick still is, like, even if I'm not writing 15 minutes a day, we did have to spend, like, the first, I don't know, couple hours retracing our steps on these projects because mm-hmm. it had been so long, and so I still need to find ways to be more on top of writing during the academic year so that we're not wasting two hours trying to figure out finding assets and figure out where the files are and what we did and all of that. Were all of the projects at like the writing stage or were some of them like you hadn't even analyzed the data yet and you had to figure out where to go? So was there like the 
that part as well. Yeah, yeah. So I call it a writing retreat, but it was really, it was more than that. Um, and I think that was key for us, at least, because if I, we had been just writing for four days, I think our brains would have melted. Yeah. And so it was nice that we had one project that was half written and the manuscript was half written. So that was the one that we were concentrating on in terms of actual writing. We had a second project that the data had been collected, but we hadn't even cleaned it yet. And so we got that one ready for conference submission. So we cleaned it, set it up, did some preliminary analyses, got it ready for conference submissions for this year. And then we had a third data set that turned out to be <laughs> challenging. And so, <laughs> and so that one we got ready to continue data collection in the fall. And so, um, so they were in different stages, but but none of them were in the creation stage. If that makes sense. Did you like writing like right alongside someone? Yeah, yeah. Do you? I, I guess I never thought about it. Um, it was fine. We were both sitting on like in the living room on chairs and couches and just clapping away. Um, it was a little, I guess the hard part was making sure we shut up enough to concentrate. Yeah. You know? But we were pretty good about it. I, you know, I, I, like the first day I would set a timer and be like, okay, we're not going to talk for whatever. And then we just fell into a rhythm. And so it wasn't, it wasn't awkward or distracting or weird. I mean, it would depend on, like, I'm not going to do this with someone I barely know. Yeah. <laughs> so that makes a difference. But yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I've never done that. I have like done the fine tuning of, of a manuscript like right alongside uh, a co-author before, and, and that was fun. Um, but when I imagine like sitting down for multiple hours next to someone or like around someone and writing, that I, what is what's the saying like hell is other people. Um, <laughs> Uh, that that sounds that sounds unpleasant to me. Though again, I've never done it, um, and I think that's more or less part of because I'm a really fussy writer. So I can spend two hours and write a page, um, but like the page will be done. It'll be it'll be good, um, and so I feel like like that's an extraordinarily slow rate of writing. And so I feel like if there's someone else like writing next to me, then like. Oh. Shit, like I'm not writing fast enough. I'm not coming up with big ideas fast enough. And then, like, then I'm worried that I'm not like writing quickly enough. And then what I'm thinking about is like I'm failing. And then like it's just this this shame spiral into non productivity. I think it helped that there was only one manuscript and only one of us was writing at a time. Okay. And so like if Alyssa was writing on the paper, then I was doing data cleaning on the other project. So it didn't feel competitive. Gotcha. Um, and so I think I think that may have helped mm -hmm. in a way. I don't know. It still sounds like an interesting idea. Yeah. yeah. I keep thinking of like, yeah, I'll do that next summer. I should probably write a little bit between now and a year right. from now. Right. So yeah. maybe I shouldn't just like bank on, you know, writing everything yeah. at that point. And I'm a little afraid of that because we already plan on doing it next summer. So yeah. we're just sort of like, I'm done. <laughs> I'll wait until then. Yeah. And of course that does not the best idea. Yeah, because the cost of like getting back into a manuscript, like, it uh, takes yeah. so long to get back into a project. Yeah. Alright, should we get to our main topic for today? Sure. Alright, so for the, the main topic today, we're going to be talking about um, sample sizes in the studies that we run, um, but the, I don't know, side effects maybe of uh, um, the push towards having larger samples. 
So, of course, uh, people have been advocating for larger samples for, I don't know, since the, what, 60s, 70s. Um, finally, um, hooray, that's actually taken root, and we're getting um, slightly larger samples. There was a, a paper that came out. They were looking at um, sample sizes, and I think it, it was either just social or maybe social and personality um, research, and they find that, yes, sample sizes over the last, like, five, ten years have gotten larger. Um, it's also coincided with more people using um, MTurk and online samples, um, so it's hard to know if, you know, the emphasis towards needing larger samples has caused that or if they just kind of coincided, but regardless, there are larger samples that people are requiring, and, and I think for the most part, it's hard to argue that that's a bad thing. Um, obviously, there are times where it might not necessarily lead to, like, if you have a biased sample to start with it doesn't necessarily get you a more representative sample but for the most part larger samples are going to be better um, but the first thing that we wanted to talk about was whether that um, you know the emphasis the requirements the the need for larger samples um, disproportionately affects different types of researchers different researchers at different institutions so you know at a, a comprehensive um, you know like where we are we, we don't always have a whole lot of uh, funding to, to run big studies on MTurk. Our um, subject pool is decent, but you know it's going to be hard if we need to run you know a couple thousand people. There just we won't be able to do that in, in a semester. That'll take multiple semesters, and so um, it might affect us. And we're kind of in the middle. You figure um, liberal arts colleges are going to have even smaller subject pools, probably less to, um, funding. And so it might really affect their ability just to publish and and, and get any. Um, large enough samples collected at all. And so um, that was kind of the first thing. I just wanted to talk about that. Do you guys see that as a problem? Is that just kind of like, yep, that's how it is and we live with it? Or is there something that can be done? What do you guys think about that? I mean, I don't know that I agree with the premise. Okay. Um, so, you're, so part of the premise is that um, or actually, what I take the premise to be is that like R ones have more access to both money and college students uh, samples compared to comprehensives, and comprehensive have more than liberal arts colleges. Yeah. Uh, now, I, I would agree with the comprehensive and the liberal arts side of that, uh, but I think then also you're talking about a very different balance of research and teaching. So may, maybe that's a problem. Maybe it's not. But I but I want to uh, sort of set that aside for a moment. Mm -hmm. But the other part is you're, you're arguing that um, comprehensives have sort of less access to subjects than R1s do. But I, I actually don't think that that's necessarily true. Mm -hmm. Certainly in case of, of money, like I'll, I'll grant money, uh, which means like you can get uh, maybe like more online samples or you can get like harder to reach samples like that, that's true. But I think my experience, so I, um, I started my, uh, my academic career um, at Illinois State and then went to Oregon briefly and then to Brown, then did a postdoc at FSU, and then here I am at App. So I've, I've bounced around a little bit, and my impression is that at App, we have a larger subject pool, or I, I have more access to subjects here than I've had anywhere else. Really? Uh, app, like, not an order of magnitude, but like double or triple um, the access to subjects here than I have at Brown, than I did at Florida State. Um, Oregon, I, I was I was only there for, for a year, so like that one I, I don't remember as clearly. Um, running into problems, but, and I think there, it's not that the subject pools necessarily differ. Our, our subject pool 
schools, probably similar, like we have a similar number of majors, but it's the demand is different. And so you have way more competition amongst labs because you have more active research labs. You have PhD students who are also drawing on it in addition to postdocs. And so because of that, like I remember like at Florida State, credits for participate uh, for getting research participants were like rationed um, in a way like you could maybe get a hundred or two hundred people but like that was it and and here I mean yeah you're right like we're not gonna run a sample of like two thousand people but no one will so I I, I disagree that like uh, we're at a disadvantage I think we're actually at an advantage at least in like social personality like I'm, I'm not uh, that, that, that's my frame of reference so that's where I'm arguing from yeah, the, I mean, the, my only experience would be at Iowa. Iowa, um, they, the subject pool was larger than it is here. And, and maybe this was a function of the timing that I was there and even, even more so now. Um, they're making a little bit of a transition to um, uh, a lot of neuroscience. And so a lot of the researchers actually weren't using the subject pool. And so there was oftentimes a big push to, like, we need to be running studies. The, you know, we don't have enough studies for the, the students. So there was just always this availability. And I, haven't, I, I would agree. I, I haven't run into much of a, um, an issue here. I've been thoughtful about it of, okay, do I really need to run the study here? But I haven't run into many issues. The other thing I was thinking is not necessarily um, the subject pool, but just the ability to run more studies, having um, whether it's postdocs or multiple graduate students to help run the studies. Whereas here, I mean, I'm heavily involved in every single study that's being run. Whereas at Iowa, there were a lot of, when I was a, a grad student there, you know, I was heading up some of the studies, the, the other graduate students were heading up studies. And I think there was just more data being collected because of that. Um, but again, I don't know that that. But that's my only experience was there. I, I'm thinking about stuff. I guess maybe in a different way. Okay. Um, I've never really had an issue with collecting data or having access to participants. Uh, I'm also someone that does a lot of stuff on MTurk for better or for worse. So maybe that's part of it. Um, but uh, I think I'm kind of trying to wrap my head around this idea of do we need incredibly large sample sizes? Um, I think for some studies, for some disciplines, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I, I don't have a strong argument for this, but I'm also you know, concerned about overpowering um, and maybe jacking up a different type of error rate. Um, so you know, to me, if we can find enough people for an appropriately powered study, that's all I'm really interested in. Uh, and so far, I, I haven't had much of an issue with that, um, but again, I mean, we're at a place where there is a, a subject pool. Um, that might change if you're at a, a smaller school that doesn't have a subject pool and maybe only has one or two people that are doing psychology research. I think the idea of properly powered, though, that has been one of the issues is that people oftentimes underestimate how many participants they need for right. a properly powered study. So if you look at like a two by two ANOVA, if you're looking for a small effect, you need about 700 people to find yeah. that interaction. That is not what most people are running. Like I, I, there are very few studies mm -hmm. where people are looking right. at you know, having 700 people in a particular, just a simple two by two design. And so that's the type of thing when I'm thinking that we need to be properly powered because most interactions, I mean, unless it's like a full crossover interaction, most interactions are, are small effects. Um, and so when you're just looking at attenuation, so that's the idea of, 
even now with running studies where you have, like, oh yeah, I had you know 250, 300 people, that's not enough. That, that's still yeah. too small, or at least that's what I would, would advocate. And if you, again, look at the power analysis, that's what it would suggest. And so I don't know about my ability to run, you know, if I have, you know, a couple honor students, if I have, a, um, you know, one or two uh, master's students, and then each one of them, um, assuming I'm looking for relatively small effects, which again, most of them are, um, then I, I don't know that I could run multiple studies with 800 participants in a semester, given my, um, the size of my lab and the amount of time that I have to put for it. Um, some people are more efficient, so maybe some some could. And if if some of them got put online, I, I could certainly do that. But then that brings up another issue of then I don't have the funding, or may or may or not have the funding to put it online. Yeah, I think that's a crucial point. This idea of like just having the people to distribute tasks and kind of allocate different aspects of the project towards. Um, yeah, that's something I would say is definitely different here, and something that I've had to kind of rethink, you know, because coming from a R1, R2 institution for your PhD program, you kind of see that that typical structure where you have the, the PI and then senior grad students mentoring graduate students, mentoring undergrads. Um, and that can happen here, but like you were saying earlier, I think so much of it falls on us. And I think that might actually be the bigger uh, restriction on running studies and adequately powering them and, and getting the sample that we need. Yeah, I've, been, I've embraced that it will take me four semesters to collect enough people for my own research. So I have a study running now. Well, it will be running again in the fall, and I think that's the third semester of data collection. And it will not be done. It'll be at least another semester. And I'm post-tenure, and I'm fine with it. <laughs> the challenge for me, which you hinted at, Andrew, is student projects. Mm -hmm. So do I allow student projects to move forward being underpowered? Or do I change my practice in some way so that those are adequately powered? And so far, most of my student projects have been underpowered because I haven't figured out a, a way to get them done in a, <laughs> in a long time and with adequate power. But it sounds like we're like collapsing across two things here. So, so one is the question that I think we started with about like, uh, is access to participants different for people at different institutions? And the sort of thing that piggybacked on that is like, and is that bad? Um, and then the second thing is, Twyla, like you brought up, well, how do we how do we deal with the need for doing student? Uh, projects and issues of power, and so I think I think we have to like separate out right. the, these two things. Because um, on the on the first question, like I again, I, I don't think that I agree that the different accessibility uh, for people at different institutions is necessarily a bad thing. I think it reflects the types of things that you get rewarded for. I, it, it might be true that. Um, we have less access to really specialized populations by virtue of money, but also when we think about tenure, our need for getting grants or publishing eight papers a year is that, that's also not a requirement. So, I mean, I think that the ability to do research seems to be scaling with the expectation of research. And so I, I guess I would disagree that like the differential access is, is necessarily a bad thing. 
Uh, and then, then like then Twyla's issue. That one is, I think, a, a harder, thornier issue about how do you do good science when you're under really tight time constraints. When you have, I mean, for undergrads, like a semester or two, and for master students, like three semesters really max. Yeah, I mean, to go back to the like, is it a bad thing? So I, would, I mean, I would agree we have a healthy subject pool here, but I think. Like, I don't know that we're typical for master's institutions, and I know we're certainly not typical for smaller liberal arts colleges. And so I would agree that they have a smaller research requirement to get tenure, but I don't know that's what's driving it. So just to say, like, oh, well, you know, you don't need the pub, so I guess you can't get it because you need a big sample. Sorry. And just end there. Like, that. so you, you, you might be a good researcher, you might have good ideas. Too bad. I mean, you can still do the research, it'll just take you longer. Right, so you're admittedly going to be much less productive and not be able to get or get the, the research out there, even if you have the good ideas, or you're going to have to turn to something else, which you know we kind of hinted at. Yeah, I mean, so, so there are opportunities for collaboration, yeah. and, and I know we'll talk about some other things at, out there as well to sort of broaden one's ability to get samples. But I, I, I don't know, like you, the, the, I feel like you're... You're making an argument that this is a bad thing, um, that people at different institutions would be able to do research at different speeds. And that seems like the, the belief that seems to be sort of smuggled in there is that everyone should be able to do the exact same amount of research in a pure in a in an equitable system. But I, I just don't buy that okay. I don't buy that argument. Yeah. So we'll come back to that idea. I do like that idea. But I did want to talk yeah about the um you know how do we deal with student projects. So certainly like um, Andrew like you said with honor students we have you know technically a year but really like a semester to collect the data. Um, and then with the um, uh, master students, you know, they're here for two years, but again, really we have a semester, maybe two, to collect the data once they've done the proposal and everything. Um, so what do we do? Like, what have you guys done in the past? Do you, are you able to collect enough data for those? Are you willing to say, like, oh, yeah, this study is underpowered, but it will meet the, the kind of spirit of an honors thesis, a master's thesis as a training, and just knowing that, like, yep, it's just never going to go anywhere? Or maybe you just try to use those as, like, pilot data? I don't know. What have you guys done? I do underpowered studies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I am okay with it, especially for honor students, I'm okay with it as a training exercise. The challenge for me is what if we find something that the finding on its face is publishable, um, the students are interested in publishing, but I know that it's underpowered, do we move forward and submit that? Or do we just say, well, that was nice. Or, or do I take up lab resources on a project that isn't even central to my program of research to continue to collect data after they've graduated? And that is the thorn in my side. Yeah, I think uh, honors projects for me like fall into one of two categories, either category A, um, this might be an underpowered project, but the student is really interested in it, so we'll, we'll go ahead and do it, but ultimately it's probably not, it, it's probably not a publishable product. Um, and then B, uh, this is a uh, project that is more central to the lab, and we'll probably be able to use this as some pilot data. Uh, but 
Now there are some exceptions. There, there are um, there's one honors thesis that like uh, we were able to do multiple studies and um, and then sometimes they are publishable. But in general, uh, I tend to think of honors projects as as falling into either. Uh, a project that helps train them to do the basics of research, but might not be publishable, um, or a project that accomplishes the same goals, but and, and will also be some some pilot data. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. That's how I kind of well, I, I don't know. I guess some of them have treated like that. Others have tried to make sure that they're publishable on their on their own, or at least as a, as a sequence of studies. Um, but with master's students, I feel like that's kind of a difference. I don't know. I don't know. But that's a different situation because I think ideally that would be something that's at least somewhat publishable. And, you know, but they don't really have that much more time to collect the data. Um, so I'm definitely thoughtful about the, the master's students. And like there was one study um, where I actually told the graduate student that, like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that because we would need way too many people and it would, be, it would just take too long to collect the data. And that is a bummer. And I, and I get that we all have, like, trade-offs that we have to make and that that's fine. Um, but, I, you know, it, it is hard having those, like, trade-offs to make sure that, like, well, yeah, that's a really interesting idea and that'd be really cool, but too bad. Um, there's just not enough time. Or we would run into a situation, Twilight, like you were saying, where then we might find something interesting, but we know it's underpowered. So then while they're gone, I'm having to, you know, basically finish their project. And, and that just becomes a whole different challenge in and of itself. So it, it's harder. I, I think it's harder to address this with master students, whether it's okay for them to run an underpowered study. And, and that's, you know, that meets the, the spirit of a, of a thesis or not. So are you guys willing to submit underpowered studies for publication anymore? Or have you drawn a hard line? I don't know that from a hard line. It's definitely a line. It's drawn more in pencil, though, <laughs> um, rather than permanent marker. No, I mean, I. It, it, it's something that I think a lot about now for, for all the studies that I do, that if we're going to do it, we're going to make sure it's adequately powered. Um, I, I don't think I, I think of it in terms of submission. I think of it in terms of what can this study tell us? And this is maybe jumping ahead a little bit. Like, I don't want to run an underpowered study because then if something shows up, uh, or rather, if something doesn't show up, then I don't know, like, the truth value of that. That maybe we just didn't run enough people uh, and we were underpowered, but, like, the effect is really there. Uh, whereas I, I feel much better, like, in the case where we say, okay, we did our power analysis, this is the number of people we need, um, the effect is or is not there, and then, like, okay, well, now, now we know something either way about this. And so then I don't feel like I need to do like four more studies to like feel like what I screwed up in this. I feel like I, I have, I, I obtain new knowledge in both cases when I do a well-powered study. So that, that's my guiding principle. Yeah, my um, line has been moving, I guess. So I don't have like a hard line because it's always shifting. It's been, you know, as I've been running more studies, I think, you know, post tenure that helps so I can do things a little bit more slowly. Um, but now, I mean, it's just, the kind of heuristics that I would use in terms of the number of uh, um, participants that we need, um, everything is just kind of increasing. And I think now I would be very reluctant to publish underpowered studies and, and not just because of, you know, missing something that's there, but also because of false positives. And that's something that I think is just, you know, that to me seems like a bigger issue in psychology right now, at least social psychology, is that there's just so many false positives and, and how many of those would have been, not all, but a lot of those would have been 
alleviated if the the studies were properly powered, just having or even overpowered, um, if you will. I, I think that that's going to be. Um, I don't find that to be that problematic of an issue because then that's where the effect size measure comes in. Yeah, okay, you find that you know P is 0.04, but your effect size measure is tiny. Then I don't care about it. We can make that that judgment. So I don't mind having a, a huge sample, even if, like I said, it's overpowered. So I think I'm shifting more towards that area. But it's easier for me to go that way because, um, you know, student study, um, um, you know, even breadling the studies on MTurk or um, student sample, and it's relatively simple studies, you know, one-shot deals. You know, I don't have to bring the people back a month later and have follow-ups and whatnot. Like, those are the studies that, like, I kind of avoid doing it because I know I wouldn't be able to get enough people. So I feel like... You guys sound like good moral beings, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I'm here in the real world, and I have, and this is sort of a hypothetical, sort of, but based in real experience, right? I have a student who feels like they need a pub to move forward in their career. We have this study that, yes, is underpowered, but also publishable in today's world, not in a top journal still publishable and I don't know if I'm there yet with the like I know that this is not the best research practice but I also know I don't know what to do with that that feels like a morally ambiguous situation and so I I guess I'm impressed that you guys are able to draw these lines but I'm also skeptical (laughs) that that it's as uh, I mean, I should note that I've graduated two master's students thus far, so my, my sample size is small, but also none of them uh, had a publication by the time they graduated. So, well, so like, there there are costs to this. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm... I think your your critique is is fair there, uh, and I guess like I'm falling on the side of like, well, you'll have some talks uh, and you'll have some presentation, really, mm-hmm. probably not a publication. Um, but I, I haven't set my sights on necessarily getting my students a publication. Like if I can, like that's awesome. Like I would love that, but um, because we have them for so little time, I think it's just really really hard to do. And so in the case that you're talking about. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I would feel that same pull that you do. If they, if they feel that they really need a publication in order to move on, then I, I think I would be sensitive to their preferences. Now, like, I guess it would also depend, like, well, how underpowered are you sure, talking? Sure. Uh, if it's, like, four people, then. Right, right. So, yeah, four people per cell, and you're like, yeah, <laughs> it seems good enough. Um, <laughs> Then, then maybe not. But I mean, if it's in if it's in the neighborhood of what we call you know better than past practices, but maybe not like up to the, like the fully woke uh, like power analysis. Like, all right, fine. Yeah, and that's my point of bringing it up is that I feel like the conversation made it sound like it was very easy to draw this line and just be the the best practitioner of research that there is. <laughs> but in the day to day work of research, there are compromises that get made, and I feel like. That's where the pull like, mm. comes in to maybe compromise some of your values. Yeah. I think another side of this argument is that uh, by setting a threshold for power, it's kind of like setting the 0.05 threshold, right? So then everything gets file drawered if it doesn't meet that threshold, which I think is equally problematic. Um, so, you know, as you were saying, Andrew, uh, if it's 
it's a little bit better, it's in the realm, and it's publishable, I say go for it. Get it out there. And you can make a, a point in the paper to address the fact that it's underpowered, uh, you know, suggest that people replicate it if they're interested with a greater sample size, or maybe even mention that you're doing that yourself. And I think that's totally fine as a, a first step in getting that out there. Yeah. All right, I'll be that guy. Um, I so I haven't been in that situation where a grad student has um, kind of quote unquote needed a pub, and we have a study that's just ready to go, but it's just slightly underpowered or whatever. But I think that the the current state of the the discipline that we're in is because of this type of motivated reasoning of like, well, I mean, it was underpowered, but, well, I mean, a T hacked it, but, well, we ran 50 analyses, but, and, and so there's always a reason to, to kind of fudge it, to get stuff out there. And I think that that's why there's so much garbage out there. Well, okay. But, but you just lumped three things in together that aren't the same thing. So I think it's different because I agree with Chris that you could say, well, okay, this is slightly underpowered. Like, here's, here is, we did a sensitivity analysis. And so, like, here's the type of effects that we could uh, detect. It's possible that this is underpowered. Now, like, in the case of, like, p-hacking or data peaking, like, yeah, okay, like, that's that's some shady shit that you shouldn't do uh, in order to get a publication. But I don't think you can, I, I don't think that those ought to be lumped in with the type of studies that are, like, done the right way but might still be a little bit underpowered. I would say underpowered studies are still going to be a questionable research practice because you're going to run a bunch of underpowered studies. You'll run more uh, um, small sample size. You'll be able to run more of those studies. You'll pick the ones that, that found something and you'll publish those. But now you're, you're again, you're lumping two things together. Uh, so, no, you're, you, you're going to... You, you publish everything. Like, does it work? Does it not work? Yeah, yeah. And then that, that protects against that type of shady practice. But that's not what's going to get published. A, a reviewer is going to look at an underpowered study and say, you found nothing. One, that's uninteresting. We don't care. So how many null results in psychology actually get published? Very few. Two, they'll say, well, you're underpowered. Of course you didn't find anything. You, had, you didn't have enough power. But if you find something, it's a little bit easier for people to kind of build that narrative um, afterwards. They're like, yeah, you're a little underpowered, but wow, it was a pretty big effect size. So therefore, you must have found what you're looking for. But, but that, again, is that issue where it's motivated reasoning. You're only viewing it in that way because you found a particular effect. And you're more likely to find spurious results if you have a smaller sample size. You're going to get more false positives with a small sample size. So, so that's the issue there is that, that we're going to get this bias. So you're going to run more studies that are smaller. And then you're going to put those out in the literature. And now we have more false positives out in the literature because they were run smaller samples. Like, I don't know, to me, it just seemed, but again, I haven't been in that situation, but it's just hard for me to, to argue or to not argue that that's the better thing to do. I mean, I'll agree that it's the better thing to do, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I don't think that it's damnable um, to, to try to publish a series of studies as long as you are open about what you did. Now, like, I'm not saying that you won't face hurdles in the, uh, in the review process. But I, I do think that, especially at a, a number of journals, both editors and reviewers are becoming more open to the idea that, okay, we ran four studies, and uh, I'm, I'm making up a hypothetical, mm. uh, we ran four studies, and in three of them, we find a consistent effect, and in, in one of them, we don't find that effect. So overall, our interpretation is this. However, we also note that 
uh, each of these, like, here's the power level for each of them. And then, I mean, I think being honest about that, like, that, I think, is, is the spirit of, of Chris's argument. I think that people are becoming more open to the imperfect study that is presented as being, or sorry, imperfect paper that's presented uh, with its imperfections, rather than, set, like, the what we have done in the past of here are four studies they're underpowered but I'm not going to admit that also like my prediction was this all along and then I'll like also suppress things like didn't turn out the right way so I uh, all this to say I agree that like better is better but I, I don't agree that things that are maybe slightly underpowered and, and maybe like you and I are just talking about differences in like degree of underpowered like I'm I'm sort of thinking of things that are slightly underpowered and maybe you're thinking about things that are like way underpowered and like way underpowered I would I would totally agree with you on uh, so so maybe we're, it's just a, a disagreement in degree not kind yeah well, so I mean I think that's probably the case I, I do worry a little bit I mean I've mentioned power analyses a bunch of times I actually hate power analyses though just because it's all dependent upon your own assumptions. You just feel the power in your gut. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, it's just dependent on your own assumption about how big the effect size is. Right. And then if you looked in the published literature, well, of course, that's going to be an overestimate of what it is. So then you pull it down a little bit. But even there, you don't know how big publication bias has been. And so I, I don't like power analyses. So really, when I'm thinking about um, you know properly powered studies, I'm just thinking studies with a lot of participants in it. So whether it doesn't matter what it is, it's like, like, okay, do you have six, seven hundred people in your study? Uh, and that's like properly powered, I would say. Uh, again, it depends on the effect that you're looking at, but I would say. Well, and my studies are like two by two by two by three by. Oh, four so then yeah, seven. you're going to need eight thousand people <laughs> right, then. Right, right. So yeah. six or seven hundred won't do it. Yeah. But my thesis are simpler, just to be clear. <laughs> yeah. So you, you don't force your students to. <laughs> they, yeah. they do it with four people for some. Nice. <laughs> I. I mean, I think this is, it's it becomes more complicated in my field because we don't do these multi, I mean, some people do, it depends on what area of research you're in, as always, but um, it's not uncommon to see single study papers in my field. And so now you don't even have the benefit of four underpowered studies yeah. that are all leading in the same direction. You do have a single study that is underpowered. And so um, I agree that that's not ideal, but I, I I don't know that I'm ready to draw a hard line and not submit some of those. I haven't recently, I guess, but um, I don't know. It's like my brain is there, but my heart hurts a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and especially for students who are trying to go on to academic careers and just don't have the opportunity while they're here to collect that many participants. I think that's where it gets really hard when you think about not just how this impacts your career, but that as advisors, we're responsible for our students and we're responsible for helping them grow. And part of that is helping them get work out into the literature. And I, I remember as a graduate student, I would, my sort of tact was always like, okay, we need to get this out here. Uh, we need to like go and send this out. And my advisor always being like, well, 
we probably need like one or two more studies before we really know what's going on. And as a, a student, like wanting to pull my hair out because it felt like nothing could get out of the barn. And now as an advisor, that has exactly flipped. And I'm like, well, I think, yeah, this is pretty clear, but maybe like one more study to like really shore this up. So, um, so when I think about, I, I do try to like take my students' perspectives about, okay, what is, like, is this solid enough? Like, yeah, it would be better if we could do one more study, but on the other hand, I do want to help my my student in their in their careers, and part of that is helping them get work out into the public sphere. Um, I wonder a little bit if making things open access might help that a little bit more. So you could always post a preprint that maybe hasn't gone out for review, but you can the the student can then say, you know, I've been working on this. This is kind of it's a working paper, like many other fields do. And then you can take the time to like run that extra study, but the student can still like plant a flag in the ground and say like I I did this thing. Yeah, I do. Like with um, on CVs, a lot of times people, especially graduate students, will put like you know manuscript in preparation, and I was like, okay, that's just garbage. Like I remember putting that on there, and like there was somewhere I had like three words on a paper, and that was like the manuscript in preparation. You wrote the title. Yeah, I wrote the title. Yeah, I came up with the title. That'll probably change anyway. Um, but I think the preprints are really nice for that because I would actually take manuscript and preparation fairly seriously. If then I could click on a link and it goes to a preprint that's like a relatively well. Um, uh, completed uh, yeah. paper, right. and I think that can help a, a little bit. Obviously, it's not the same. Uh, um, most people aren't going to view it as the same as a right. publication, um, rightfully so. It has been peer reviewed, but, but for like a master's student applying to a PhD or things like that, I think I think that would be maybe like a middle ground, so that you could allow them to get the sort of academic credit for for their scholarship, but maybe not worry about. Are we sending underpowered studies out into the the published permanent literature? All right, so I have a maybe controversial suggestion. So um, I'm not even 100% sure that I agree with this, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. The more I've been thinking about it, the more I, I actually like the idea. So what if we, just as a field, just decided that no studies with, let's say, fewer than 1,000 people could get published? So if you want to publish it, you got to have a thousand participants. Um, like, what would that do? And, and I mean, one thing you know, I'm thinking about. Well, that would slow down the number of publications. Obviously, there'd be fewer publications, um, and the publications likely would be um, more accurate representations of the real world. Meaning, there would be fewer um, uh, false positives, also fewer false negatives. Um, but but certainly, we would um, we would have better research out there. Think about the number of studies um, that have been run in the past that, that didn't replicate, that are like, yeah, if they collected a thousand people, I'm guessing that that probably would not have found what they found. Um, so in other areas, um, not in psychology, other areas, they've started to kind of take this model. So I don't know much about it, but I know in like in genetics, they've started to run huge multi-site studies, literally with tens and hundreds of thousands of people. And and so there are these huge um, collaborations, 
obviously no one group is collecting that much data, um, but there, there'll be you know, papers that they'll publish and they'll have 150 authors on it because it's collected in many different areas. And that's really helped to um, address some of the issues that they had where they would have very small samples and then they would find spurious results and present them as if there's, there's something new and then those, of course, didn't replicate. And so that's, that's really helping them. Um, that's something that's a model that, that we actually could incorporate. Like there are some studies that have done that. So like the, the triple R's, the um, registered replication reports, um, they'll come up with a methodology, um, distribute the materials, and then in maybe you know, 10, 15, 20 different um, labs, they'll run exactly the same study. Each lab is only running maybe 100 participants, but overall then they're getting you know, 2,000 people or so. And then we have a good idea of what's actually happening in that particular delimited um, 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 set, because of course you're looking at just one particular effect, but you have a good idea of is that effect real with those materials and so on. One of the things that's really interesting is that you, you, you see is that the effect, of course, varies across the different institutions just because of sampling error. But of course, when you're averaging across that, you can see, okay, what's the, what's the true effect? And so I'm wondering if that would be um, kind of using that, that, you know, I don't know, other areas, other field, using that as a, as a model for kind of cleaning up the issues that we do have in psychology. And, and one thing I'll throw it out there, I'm not saying you can't run smaller studies. So as a teaching tool, like we've talked about before, sure. You can have a master student, you can have a, um, a honor student run as a teaching tool. As a pilot study, sure, yeah, you'll definitely want to pilot the materials before you send it out to five different, six different uh, researchers to, to help you collect the thousand participants. So sure, you can run the studies, but in terms of what is publishable, what are we going to put out there? Uh, that has to be, you know, like I just picked an arbitrary number, but a thousand seemed like a big number. So, so you know, it has to be more than a thousand participants. What do you think about that? I have concerns. <laughs> <laughs> I so the context you were describing sounds lovely, mm -hmm. but you're sort of assuming everyone is using really good research practices and just increasing their sample size. Whereas my concern would be that uh, people, certain people with certain motivations or um, practices might choose, they might say to themselves, if I need a thousand people, I'm going to throw everything into this study. And so now we're left with them cherry picking what to report, right? Because now I'm, I'm going to make it last. <laughs> I'm going to make sure that I have multiple conferences, presentations, multiple papers that I can get out of this single data set. And so I worry about the multiple measure issue. Um, and then I also worry that, and you said a thousand is arbitrary, but part of that is also they might increase the complexity of their design, again, because it's their one, one you know, study they're running for two years. And so then a thousand isn't even enough. And so then you're still underpowered in the end. Yeah, so it would be like a thousand or whatever is, you know, a, a power analysis is going to say. Because I agree, yeah, if you throw in 27 factors. But then, then that works. just shifts the bar. Like, that doesn't really, I don't think that solves it. Because then you're saying a thousand or, and then it's just back to the research, researcher to decide what their, what their sample size needs are. And then they're still going to be like, well, I actually only need 1,100 when they probably needed 2,500. But you could specify, you say like, okay, for like this type of study, like we have like set standards. I mean, I, I think I think that's what Smith is going for there. But I, I actually have, I have a different set of complaints. Uh, 
I feel like my disagreeableness is on is on full display today. I apologize. Uh, so first, I, I wanted to know. So you suggested like two things. One is we increase sample size to like a thousand people or. You know, thousand people or whatever appropriate sample size is per study. And the other thing that you suggested was sort of massive collaborations. And I'm curious which one, I, I know that like the two will, could go together because large collaborations means more and more people, but I'm curious which one of those two do you think is solving the problem? Um, well, neither are solving everything. Obviously, a lot of this has to do with, like, yes, with also good, um, you know, pre-registration, so they're not cherry-picking data. So, but those things are, 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 I mean, we all know that that needs to happen. You can cherry-pick data with a small study. So, so it's not going to fix it by itself, but it's just raising the bar, changing what it is. And so there, I would say, um, really, I'm just talking about having larger samples. The way people do that might be through these collaborations. It doesn't have to be a 20-site collaboration. Like, I had a collaboration with a, um, um, actually the uh, my master's advisor um, just last semester. They were running a study. They collected 250 people. We ran exactly the same study here, collected 250, and then we're in a kind of pool that together, of course, you know, looking to see if there are differences across sites, but, but pool that together. Now we have one study that was run exactly the same, and we have five. 500 participants. Um, it's not quite to the thousand threshold, but I can imagine things like that that would be very easy for us to do that we could do at this type of an institution or even at, at liberal arts colleges where they could collaborate. But obviously, if people have the resources that they need to run a thousand person study on their own, that's fine as well. It doesn't require that there is actually a collaboration. That's just one kind of way to, to, okay. to get to that level. So, so the goal, the, the fix for you is like, we need, uh, like, so what, what would the world look like yeah. if we had thousand person samples? Again, like that, that's our standard for a sufficient size yeah. sample. Um, and, and not just sufficient, like much higher yeah. than what we have right now, typically. Right. Um, yeah, I, I guess I think then what you get is, so there, there was an interesting Twitter thread the other day about sort of uh, incentive structures and things that either departments or institutions have implemented to fix various problems. And then the way that, like the, the practical effect, which is across the board, like just was not great for all those things. And I think here, like the motive would be good. Like we want to know what types of results are, are replicable. Um, but I think that the effect is then you push even harder on an already strained grant system, because in order to do these big studies, you're going to need money to do them in many places. Again, setting aside like the massive collaborations, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, setting aside these massive collaborations. So one, you're going to need money for these, maybe even in the case of massive collaborations. Two, you're going to preferentially reward people who have the time to do such studies. And so, um, you know, earlier we were talking about sort of democratizing research and like making it more open to other people. I think this would have exactly the opposite effect. So I would agree with that. And your um, response to that was, well, sucks to be the people who can't collect the big ones. Yeah, no, yeah. And so I would say I agree with what you're saying. It sucks to be the people who have to take a lot more time, a lot more effort to get to the thousand people. That's tough. But if we want, want to be um, confident in the research that's being published and we want to publish fewer papers, which was, you know, 
see podcast, I don't know, number two, three, something like that. Right. Um, then that's actually a way to, to do that, to become more. And I agree that there would be cost to that in terms of um, publishing fewer papers, mm-hmm. but I'm not necessarily convinced that's a problem. And oh, then the okay. other thing I would say is it doesn't necessarily have to result in fewer lines on a CV. It just would mean you're on more, um, there's more authors on any given paper because, you know, instead of having, you know, two people publish two studies, you have the two people work together and publish one. And now they're both getting the, the same number of publications, but of course there's just more authors on each paper. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I, I was curious, like if you're willing to like, bite that particular bullet and it mm-hmm. sounds like you, you are. So, uh, so in that case, like, cause the trade off would be between, do we have a more democratized system and do we have a more high powered system? Like the, those two things would, would have to trade off with one another. But if you're, if you're willing to accept that trade off, then like, that's fine. Yes. As somebody who already has tenure, I'm willing to accept that trade off. <laughs> Um, okay. Uh, so I think then the issue is that you have these then multiple author, big collaborations. And there, I think the problem that we might run into as a field is maybe just like structural problems. So the way that we, we think about hiring and the way that we think about promotion is that you have like a PI model and we evaluate your intellectual contributions to things. If your body of work is primarily sets of papers where you're one of 60 authors, how do we, how do we evaluate that type of work? That you work well with others, you can get publications out there, you're contributing to good um, reproducible science, and so by being a part of these large collaborations, you're really working to move our field forward. If you're publishing things on your own... But are you really... I mean, so you say, like, you're really working to move Mm -hmm. the field forward. If you're one of 60 people, like, it's true that you are moving the field forward, but, like, how much are you driving that? Because that's one of the things that we evaluate. Like, are you a prime driver of a body of research? Right. Well, I would say that would be an issue of the the system that we're kind of rewarding right now. If we are only rewarding the people who are driving it, then that's going to basically encourage everybody to do that and to find that novel finding that may or may not be true to really push that and and that's not finding truth that's finding some novel thing that may or may not replicate Mm -hmm. so again i don't know that that's i think i agree it's a structural problem but i would also say that's what we're trying to prevent against that we're trying to reward these um kind of bigger studies that we can be more confident in and then, yes, even if you are the you know 60th author on there to say like, wow, hey, good job that you've been on three of these. Um, if you haven't been on any of them, we should look down on that and say like, why the hell are you not working on these big projects that are actually helping? You're only publishing these little piddly one-off things and that's not really doing a whole lot. Man, you gotta start working with other people. You gotta start contributing to the larger body of research. Or at least that's what, what the, the goal would be. I, I agree that, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't have that view, but that's, I mean, it has to start somewhere. I don't think that what we're doing right now is working particularly well, and certainly changes have been made, um, but, you know, I, I think that this would be another way to push that change. 
it's very comrade researcher. Why aren't you? Why aren't you working for the the, the collective good? And but again, you don't have to be a part of the big collaborations. Like I said, you could just um, you know because you would talk about earlier of you know needing to add another study and having this four study sequence. Well, instead of four studies, you have two, and then now you've doubled your sample size. And and so that's the idea there. Like, well, okay, just slow it down, collect more data. And let's make sure that the, the data that we have are actually good. Again, not preventing you from running the small studies as training um, opportunities for students or as pilot data, that's fine. But in terms of publishable, it would be above, again, some very high arbitrary threshold. But if you're not doing the big group work, then we should look down on you. Sure. Okay. So what do you think about the idea that some, maybe a lot of people got into this business because they they find certain questions interesting and they just want to kind of hang out and study those questions. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, moving toward your suggestions, which I think are lovely, um, will, like, I sort of have the phrase academic freedom kind of, like, <laughs> bouncing around in my head. It'll sort of um, disincentivize or discourage that subset of researchers who got into this field for that reason. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. And again, I think that's why I was saying you can still run those studies if you're interested. If you just want to do it or present it as a poster or a paper at a talk at a conference, that's fine. But in terms of getting it in the published literature, something that we think, hey, this is truth, or at least some uh, approximation of that, that we're going to kind of set a higher threshold for that. And so if people want to have that type of a... Um, research, um, I don't know, program, then that's fine. And they would know those or they would have kind of their answers that they feel like are, are satisfying to them and they would be able to train students and, and get them the experience that they need. But in terms of getting it published, they would then need to run in a different way, collaborate with a few other people, have a side project where they're just like running that one study for four semesters, kind of like what you're doing. Um, and so, so they would need some other avenue to get it published. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with that, I guess. And I think you, in the middle of that, you said um, that publishing should be for stating what we think the truth is. And I think that's different than what a lot of people think about. People think that publishing should be for like, hey, I found this interesting thing. What do you guys think? Mm -hmm. And so it would require almost a philosophical shift. <laughs> yeah, I think we're gonna burn it all down. Is what Smith yeah, said. That's, that, that's basically what I'm saying. Yeah. So, so the more that I've been thinking about this, though, like originally I just thought of this as like, okay, hey, this will be something funny to to bring up, and then we'll just like talk about how this is the stupidest idea ever. But the more that I've been thinking about it, the more like I actually like the idea. And I agree that it's going to affect different people differently. And so I made the joke of like, yeah, as a you know, tenured faculty member, it's easy for me to do that. But then that's then like after I had that thought a while ago, I was like, oh, crap. Then that means I'm probably the person who should do it. We shouldn't rely on the grad students or the early career researchers to be like, all right, well, you know, back in the old day, you get to do this. But now it sucks to be you. You have to spend, you know, 15 years to do this sort of thing or, or just completely change how you um, um, do research and whatnot, even though we're doing a little of that already. Um, so so I think that it would be on some of the older folks to take up this um I don't know, call to start 
doing things differently, making these multi-site collaborations or just larger individual studies, fine, but these multi-site collaborations um, more mainstream of, of looking at some of these things in a different way that when somebody is involved in that, really encouraging them to say like, wow, hey, good job. You really contributed to something that we can be very confident about because if something's just one paper, even if it's a series of studies, it's all by the same group and you still kind of worry about that sort of thing. Um, so, so I think that it, it definitely could be something that would be encouraged. And I think in other disciplines, it is. Um, I would say the... the um, the other thing is that I was going to talk about, too, is that, you know, at conferences, that would be a good time to establish some of those collaborations. We talked about conferences before, and so it might be good to, at conferences, see if you could get people, like, hey, I have this paradigm set up, and then, um, you know, distributing materials, distributing information, and so I think that would be a good use of those the conferences. Yeah. I don't want to steamroll this point about conferences, but I've been like stewing this point oh, yeah. in my head for a while about this. Uh, I think part of my hesitancy is, as Twilight mentioned, it would take just a huge philosophical change. And maybe if later career researchers were doing that, as you mentioned, it would happen. Um, but another point of hesitancy for me is, you know, I'm assuming you're kind of pulling from the model that comes from genetics and biology. Uh, and I know they talked about this on Everything Hurts, right? So I don't want to steal their point. Um, but uh, one point there was that the reason for that in genetics and biology is they went from like single candidate gene studies to polygenetic studies. And to do those, you just have to have a ton of people and the right analyses. Um, so they're doing stuff that I think is much more complicated than what we're doing. Uh, so part of me is like, do we even need to bump our sample size up? to 1,000 or 2,000 or whatever the arbitrary cutoff would be that we think is comparable in this model to what other fields have done. You know, is an interaction or moderated mediation on the level of doing a polygenetic analysis? I don't know. I mean, maybe we would benefit from treating it as such, even if it isn't, right, because we have more sensitivity, but I, I still don't know if it quite matches. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my short answer is like, yes, I agree. We don't need in the, you know, hundreds of thousands of participants that they right. need because I agree they're they're looking for much smaller effects and also running many analyses that they're they're correcting for. So certainly we don't need that. But I would also say where our field is right now is not to the level, and so this would help get us up there. Right. Um, but again, I, I agree that it would need to be kind of a philosophical philosophical change. I don't know that, that this would happen overnight, but I don't think right. any of the changes have, have kind of happened overnight that we're kind of looking for. Even just pre-registration, obviously not everybody's on board with that. Even right. just deciding sample size beforehand, people aren't even on board, all aren't on board with that. So, so I think there could be definitely some issues. Yeah, I mean, in cards on the table, like I'm all for this. Like I really like this idea, um, I, and I don't want to sound like an old fogey. Like, um, oh, we don't we don't need larger sample sizes because I can get away with doing 20 people uh, in any one study. But I mean, I think we might want to think about fine tuning it and how it fits to psychology as opposed to saying, oh, this worked here, let's let's do it over here. Yeah, no, I would agree. All right, so it looks like you guys have sufficiently uh, berated my idea. Um, so, well, uh, so we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. All right, well, um, thank you for listening to Marginally Significant, and we'll talk with you next time. Bye.
Thank you for listening to Marginally Significant. We'd love to hear if you have comments, questions, or any feedback about today's episode. You can message us on Twitter at MarginallySig. Our email address is MarginallySig at gmail.com. And there's a contact form on our website, which is MarginallySig.com. However you contact us, we'll be sure to reply. Uh, If you're interested in supporting the show, we'd also love getting reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And finally, uh, you can post about the show on Twitter, Facebook, or any other other social media platform that you use. However you support the show, we really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.